Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. We're beginning in the 8th chapter of the book of Luke to talk about a teaching mechanism that Jesus used called a parable. When I was growing up in Sunday school, they taught us that a parable was an earthly story with a spiritual meaning, and that's still a pretty good definition. But it's a little story where Jesus used an illustration from something that everybody understood to teach them something that they didn't know and needed to know. And we'll be looking at that today with the parable of the sower. But I thought it might be helpful because the context of where this took place is all the way around the Sea of Galilee. I thought it might be helpful if we gave a little video showing you what the Sea of Galilee, if you've never been there, what it looks like, and, and, and then we can make reference to the little towns and villages that existed all the way around it, which would have been an area of probably 30 to 40 miles to go all the way around it. So if the guys upstairs are ready, let's go ahead and show that little video of the, about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is also known in the Bible as the Lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Tiberias, and Sea of Kinnereth. The Sea of Galilee isn't really a sea per se, it's actually a freshwater lake fed by nearby mountains and springs, which combine at the head of the Jordan River to the north. The Jordan River then passes through the lake, which is about 13 miles long and about 8 miles wide. It's 686 feet below sea level, making it the lowest freshwater lake in the world. The landscape around the Sea of Galilee is unique. To the east and west, the ground rises steeply from the shore to fertile plateaus above. The black basalt boulders that cover the hillsides are typical of a landscape that was once volcanic. When this black basalt was used as building materials in the ancient towns and synagogues, such as here at Capernaum and here at Chorazin, it gives a dark, glistening look. From the southern shore, you can see the twin peaks of Mount Canaan to the north, with Mount Hermon way beyond in the distance. From the west, you can see the small white houses of Engev over on the eastern shore. Beyond Engev rises a hill that was the site of the Hellenistic town Hippos. From the east, you can see Magdala Bay on the northwestern shore, which lies just below biblical Tabga and Capernaum. The land surrounding the Sea of Galilee today appears rather quiet and barren. However, history tells us that this wasn't the case during the time of Jesus. This was a hub for agriculture and trade. The first century historian Josephus describes the area as follows. Its nature is wonderful as well as its beauty. Its soil is so fruitful that all sorts of trees can grow upon it, and the inhabitants accordingly plant all sorts of trees there. The temper of the air is so well mixed that it agrees very well with those several sorts, particularly walnuts, which require the coldest air. There are palm trees also, which grow best in hot air, 
fig trees also and olives grow near them, which yet require an air that is more temperate. One may call this place the ambition of nature, where it forces those plants that are naturally enemies to one another to agree together. Jewish tradition says that the fruit around the Sea of Galilee ripened as fast as a deer could run. One could eat a hundred pieces of it and still wish for more. The area around the Sea of Galilee, if you go west, a little northwest, you would end up at the mountain where Elijah did his wonderful works. And then just over the hill to the north is the third largest city in Israel called Haifa. That valley of Jezreel that goes from Haifa all the way down to the Sea of Galilee is some of the most rich and productive farmland in the world. It provides the fruit and vegetables and other things for the entire nation of Israel and provides them with enough leftovers to be able to export stuff to other parts of the Mediterranean world. So it's a beautiful area. If you were at Nazareth where Jesus grew up, you would overlook the Valley of Jezreel that's mentioned a lot in the Old Testament. There's a river that runs through it, so there's an abundance of water, plenty of rain, and a temperate climate that is uh, where people can sleep outside if they really want to, and probably Jesus had to from time to time. It's in this area. He grew up in Nazareth, and then it's in that. Then he moved from there, uh, his headquarters to Capernaum, which is a small fishing village just at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. He made reference in the, in the video, Mount Hermon is the largest mountain in that area. It's 10,000 feet high and there's snow on it the year round. The water, when the snow melts, the, river, the, the mountain is such that the water runs down through it and comes out at an area the Bible calls Caesarea Philippi. There was a town there, a good-sized town, and, and there's a reference in the 16th and 17th and 18th chapter of Matthew about what took place there that we'll talk about in a minute. It is the headwaters, the, the snow that melts there is the headwaters of the Jordan River, which fills the, then it fills the Sea of Galilee, and then from the Galilee, the Jordan River runs down to the Dead Sea. The Jordan River, or the Sea of Galilee, is about 650 to 700 feet below sea level, according to how much they've drained it. It goes all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is 1,300 and some feet below sea level. The Dead Sea has no outlet. That's why it's called the Dead Sea. Nothing can grow. There are no fish in it, nothing. It's full of minerals. You can't drown in the Dead Sea. If you were to go with me while we would visit, we'd have you to put on your swimsuit and go jump into the Jordan, into the sea, uh, the Dead Sea, and you go under and then you bob up like a float on a fishing pole because it is so dense with chemicals in the water that it's buoyant, that your body is buoyant. And even people can't swim after you jump in, you're not afraid of it anymore because you just pop up. It's a whole lot lower than it used to be because the Israelis have made billions of dollars selling the uh, chemicals that they have because they've got two big factories to take chemicals out of the Dead Sea. 
But Jesus operated primarily around the Sea of Galilee. And what we're getting ready to read is only there. Before we get to the parable of the sower, though, it tells us something about the entourage that Jesus traveled with. He was extremely popular. He was a rock star in that area. He was so well known that uh, people in Jerusalem and Jericho and other places sent ambassadors up to check him out. Who is this guy that is so popular? Because we have scripture that says that at least on a couple of instances there were four or 5,000 people present when he was teaching. So he had, uh, and it was interesting, he was so popular and he had done a lot of healing and, uh, and uh, preaching. He only had one subject, just one. And uh, that was the kingdom of God. That's all he talked about. And the illustrations that are called parables that we're getting ready to look at, invariably, especially if you further on in Luke when you get over in about the 16th chapter, these are referred to as parables of the kingdom. And you'll see why in just a minute. But let's look first of all at an interesting traveling group. He had the 12 that you already know about. And then there were others who traveled with them or who from time to time would visit them to help them. It reads like this. After this, Jesus traveled about from town and village, one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That's his single subject. The twelve were with him. We've already been introduced to the twelve, the disciples that were elevated to the realm of apostle. A disciple is a learner. An apostle is one who has been taught and is now being sent out with the same message that Jesus preached. The message, the kingdom of God. They were equipped also with other blessings that we will see about in just a moment. In addition to the twelve, it says there were some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, because that's the, there's a town called Magdala, and she was from that town, and so she was, and she was female, which put the L-E-N-E on the end of it, so it was Mary from Magdalene, Magdala, or they called her Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, whoever that bird was, he was, it says he was the manager of Herod's household. Now, he mentioned Herod simply because Herod kept uh, a palace around the Sea of Galilee, and, and he operated primarily from the city of Tiberias, which was the largest town around the Sea of Galilee. It still is. And there were many others. These, one, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. What it appears took place was that Jesus would be in a small town, maybe Magdala. He would be there for a day, and, the, and his, uh, his entourage, the twelve, and others who were traveling with him would move to the next town. The women would be there the next day. They would have bought food and brought it there to feed uh, his apostles and himself. Because, you see, they didn't have a, uh, a motels. It says, you know, that there were inns, but inns were really what we would call beer joints with a room in the back, usually for a prostitute to use. And so people of his moral character simply wouldn't hang around there. And so most of the time they slept outside. 
and the beautiful weather around there made that possible. Because when you're 650 feet below sea level, as a general rule, it's pretty nice. The weather's pretty nice. You're closer to hell. The scripture didn't say that. I just said that. <laughs> See if you were awake. Anyway, uh, this entourage that Jesus had would move from one town to another. And people from the town where he had been just sometimes would follow him. But the disciples would probably sleep outside. It wouldn't bother me. Now, today, if you go there, you'll find that there's a thing called a kibbutzim. I am on the end of it is the same as an S. It, it means it's, plural, it's more than one. Kibbutzim are villages that the Jews have set up all the way around the city. Some of them are for farming. Some of them are for uh, uh, raise animals, dairy farming. Some of them are, are just uh, have gardens and... and uh, raise fruit, others raise uh, olives, others are their farming communities. There are all kinds of things. And Jesus used these various areas that they worked around that everybody knew and understand. He used them as illustrations in his parables. There were, he, he used uh, housekeeping, he used fishing, he used farming, he used family life, he used uh, uh, royalty because the Herods were there. And he used, uh, in other times, banquets because the, the wealthy um, and royalty would often have banquets. That's where John the Baptist head, he lost his head because of one of those banquets. So, it, I'm just trying to give you this background. And, and, and the other thing, that as we start reading the parable that I'll do, is I'll try to explain to you as best I can how farming took place even when I was a child that is very similar to what took place here. I hope people are all right. That's always a sign somebody's in trouble. Um, on the farm where I grew up, we had 127 acres. We had uh, five and a half acres of tobacco. We had, had about uh, 15 to 20 acres of corn, raised about we had we milked about 12 cows uh, on a daily basis, and we had a few beef cattle as well on that farm. And in the fall of the year, after we had cut the corn and shucked the corn and then carried the corn stalks in to feed the cattle in the, in the cold weather, we would then go out and, and we would sow usually wheat, in Israel, it would have been either wheat or barley. They had two different ones that they used often. But on the farm, we used wheat, and we would sow it. You could use it as for two reasons. Next summer, next late in the spring, you could uh, early summer, you could reap it, and, and you'd have people come in, and because uh, we couldn't do it. We'd that to cut the wheat, we would cut it and put it in shocks, and then they would come uh, with a threshing machine and make a big straw stack, and you'd take the wheat from it. But in order to sow that, it was all done by hand. We had we had um, uh, we had no we, had, we didn't never had a tractor. We anything that that came in, we'd had to rent from a guy named Shirley Kurtz, a neighbor. We did it all by hand. Even the sowing of the wheat in the fall after the corn had been harvested and the field had been cleaned off of the fodder shocks. And you had a, you had take a sack 
and and that sack would be have a a, a, a belt kind of that goes around the neck and the shoulders, and you would have about a three gallon bucket full of of wheat put inside of that sack that formed a bag, and there would be an opening on the side. And you would learn, and my father taught all of us how to do it. You held one hand, you held the bag, and you held it open so you could get your hand in to get the grain. And you would walk and sow the grain like this. You reach in, sow it. Reach in, sow it. And we did that over 15 or 20 acres. That's the image that you need to have in your mind as we read this parable of the sower. Because that's the way they did it. It was all done by hand. No mechanical devices there. The harvesting was done by hand. We did the same thing at home. The threshing machine we paid to have come in. And then the wheat would be taken to the milling company up in Germantown. Well, I've already told you more than you probably can understand. So let's start reading then at the fourth chapter, or at the fourth verse of chapter 8. It says, and this is one of those villages where Jesus now had, had gathered. They'd already probably fed the breakfast to the apostles, and they'd sat around and had a teaching, teaching time. While a large crowd was gathering, and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. What's a parable? It's an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. Here's the story. A farmer went out to sow his seed. Get the picture now. Thing around his neck, bag, opening. Reach in to get the seed. When the bag is empty, he marks his place, stops, goes, refills his bag, starts all over again. As he scattered the seed all by hand, and by the way, you would be amazed at how level and, and uh, that the farmers were able to, to scatter that seed. Some fell among the paths. Now, here's what you need to understand. Most of the farms there were quite small. Most of them were small. This room here would be a pretty good size area to be sown. It's 120 by 120, 14,000 square feet of about a little plus. And, and, and so along the edges of it, would, somebody else would have a... a a garden spot on the, the, it, the, the edges would be marked with stones you knew where yours were and then on the other side there would be another plot and, and between the two would be a path where people would walk and so you, the, that path would be beaten down and when the seed fell on it it could not penetrate the soil. So it just laid there and uh, it happened to disappear. We'll see how. It said some fell among the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it because it couldn't, you couldn't rake it and get it under the soil. Some fell on rock. Now this is a difficult translation here. What it really means is there was rock and a thin layer of soil on top of it. 
so that there was no room for the roots to go down because when the roots went through maybe an inch or half inch of soil, it hit the rock. If you were to go down to Lexington, Kentucky, in that beautiful area where there are horse farms and everything, you would find that if you were to get out there and plow it, you would find that anywhere from 7 to 18 inches below the surface of topsoil, you would find limestone. And if a plow hits that limestone, you will see them bounce up in the air and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, it's at, it's at different thicknesses. What he's talking about here is that it's very thin soil on top before it hits uh, a rock basin. That whole area was covered with something that he referred to as basalt. Basalt is the rock that comes out of a volcano and then sets up. And it's usually black. And it's usually, uh, well, you, that's enough said about that, but that's so that you know what it is. Some fell on the rock, and when it came up, the plants withered because there was no moisture there. Why? It's because when the sun comes out and the soil is thin, the moisture quickly dries up, and there's no moisture to germinate the seed, and so it just dies. Other seed fell among thorns. Everybody knows what thistles and thorns are. They always grow faster than the, uh, than the stuff that you're, you're planting. They just do. I've always, because you see, the ground, you have to go back to the book of Genesis to understand that. Because when man sinned, the ground was cursed with thistles and thorns. And, and since it was the, the, a, a curse, it always grows faster than the wheat or the barley or whatever that you're sowing. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked out the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than it was sown. This is a story that Jesus told, and when he had finished telling it, when he had said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Translated in the northern Kentucky English, that means, Those of you who don't understand what I'm saying, listen to me. I'm going to try to help you understand it. His disciples even asked him, What does this parable mean? He said, The knowledge, now listen to this is important. The knowledge of the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of God has been given to you. He's talking about the 12 in particular. Now, we need to stop there for a minute and see what Jesus meant by that. Jesus was saying to the 12 apostles, I'm going to give to you guys the capacity for the Father himself to reveal to you what you need to know. But it won't be for anybody else. People have a hard time with that. What he's saying is, you 12, I have selected to take the message of the kingdom of God to the whole known world. And they did, even into India. Thomas is supposed to have died in India, in southwestern India. And you're going to hear things and, to give under, and be given understanding that, that no one else knows. 
Now, you need to, the rest of the sentence says this, but to others, I, I need to speak in parables or illustrations so that they can come to understand it. Now, let me illustrate what I'm talking about, or let me explain from Scripture what I'm talking about when it comes to the apostles getting direct revelation from God. If you look in the 16th and 17th chapter of the book of Matthew, Jesus was assembled at the foot of Mount Hermon at that city called Caesarea Philippi. And it was there that he was teaching his apostles, the 12. They were sitting there, and Jesus asked them a question. The question that he asked is, who do people say that I am? And one of them answered and said, well, some people say maybe you're John the Baptist. Others say that you're Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But Jesus said, but who do you say I am? And Peter answered the question. He said, you're the Messiah, the promised one of God, the, the Christ, the anointed one, the king of the kingdom of God. And then listen to what Jesus said to Peter. Blessed art you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but you have received it directly from my Father in heaven. He had received direct revelation of who Jesus was. Now, he's not the only one. All of the twelve were in that position. And your New Testament was written because of the revelation that God gave to the apostles who put it in writing. If you go to the 12th chapter of the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul tells you about his. He says, I've had a thorn in the flesh. I asked God more than once, please take it away because it was a big problem. It appeared to be an eye problem called ophthalmia. Because he had difficulty reading. Others say that it was probably something else, but... I lean toward that because he said in one instance, you know, you can see that I've written this myself because of the size of what I'm writing. He had to write it big in order because of the eye problem on the scroll. And he said, but, but Lord, why do I have this thing? And the Lord said to him, Paul, you have an ego problem. And you have an ego problem because of the revelation that God has given you that caused other people to be jealous of you. Why don't, why don't I get direct revelation from God? And because of that revelation and your tendency to gloat about it, I've given you a reminder that it wasn't you, it was me. You're just my tool. Now, that creates problems for us to understand. The question is this. Does God continue to give revelation, or did he cease with revelation with the writing of the New Testament? The Mormons say, no, he continued revelation, and they wrote what's called the Book of Mormon and added it to your Bible. If you were to go in a motel sometime, you would see a Book of Mormon there, and it says another testament. The truth of the matter is they were wrong. Divine revelation for the word of God ceased with the death of the apostles. And he's not, and, and you may say, well, I don't know about that. God, God told me something. Well, you better be careful 
because if you're not awfully careful, you'll be denying the very word of God by claiming to have something that God said he wasn't going to give you. But people have a tendency sometimes to allow their emotions to dictate their intellect, and that always gets us in trouble. When you look carefully at the book of Revelation, it's the close of your Bible. In the 22nd chapter of the book of Revelation, starting at verse 18, he says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to them the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away words from the book of prophecy, meaning the book of Revelation, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in the book. Folks, let me tell you something. Everything you need to know is here. And you'll see why, as we continue to look at it, when Jesus goes to the trouble of explaining this parable, so that all could, he explained it to his, 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 his disciples, even, his apostles, even though they didn't need to know it. They were asking that because their revelation came directly from God, the Father. And then they recorded it in writing and passed it along to us. The Bible is, is God's word revealed to men to write down for us. It is called in scripture the very breath of God. Revealed in writing. We don't need anything else. We just need to know what's in it. And God bless Matthew for finally saying, look guys, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to preach through the Bible, verse at a time, and making it as clear for people to understand so nobody has to ask, what does it mean? So they received it by divine revelation. But when you read the rest of that verse, it says this, But the others, I speak in parables, so that... Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. So when Jesus, he said, you guys are going to hear and understand things that come directly to God. They won't understand it. So I have to give them little illustrations of the life that they live. Of the, I'll take them from farming, as he does here, or from fishing or whatever, to use them as illustrate the nature of the kingdom of God, which was his only sermon. So then he says, starting at verse 11, to those who were gathered there, and especially to his apostles who said, you know, because they didn't need to hear it, but they asked, so he did it. Verse 11 says, this is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. I need to stop there for a minute. Because if you watch much television and see many religious programs, you'll see these guys who invariably are saying that seed is the money that you send to them. If you send some seed, they say, God will multiply it a hundred times. Now, I hate to tell you this, but he wasn't talking about money. He was talking about preaching the Bible to people and when they hear it, the one person could preach it, but scores and hundreds of people may come to Christ as a result of it if they're teaching the Bible. That's what he was really saying. 
people who are looking for your money, you need to avoid like the coronavirus. Because that's all they want. When you preach the Bible, not looking for anything in return, but for God to bless it to the hearers so they can recognize who the King of Kings is, who the King of His of the kingdom of God really is the Christ, the one that Peter said, you're the Messiah, you're the king of kings, you're the one that God has sent to establish his kingdom here on earth, even as it is in heaven. Then he goes on to say, those along the path are the ones who hear and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. Now, it's interesting that when he gave the birds in the Bible have a bad, they need a PR person. Because in the Bible, birds are bad guys almost invariably. Now, I can identify with that, but most of you couldn't if you've never been raised on a farm 60 or 70 years ago. Sixty or seventy years ago, when we planted corn, we didn't have one of these things where you plant eight or ten rows at a time in perfect alignment and so on and so forth. We had a thing that stood about this high with handles on either side. And there was a metal tip on the end of it. And you had a little container on the side where the corn was put. Sometimes we put stuff on the corn that made it unworthy of eating we learned that in time and there was a reason for it because you would take that thing punch it in the ground snap it open up a couple of grains would come out you pull it back out and you usually stepped on it and went to the next and we did that to plant 15 16 17 acres of corn one at a time now, the irritating thing about it was there were some blackbirds sailing around up in the air. We call them crows. And they would watch you plant corn. And when you got about 100 yards down the row, because some of those rows were, you know, half, acre, or half a mile long or on a ridge, that crow would get back there use his bill and foot and scrape out and find that corn and eat it. Crows are really smart. Dad got, had an old single-barrel 20-gauge shotgun, and he put a strap on and put it on his back. I'm going to get me a crow. Did you know a crow can tell the difference between a corn planter and a hoe and a rake and a gun? They're smarter than a lot of people. I know why... He, when he said the devil comes and takes it away, he was talking about those birds. And, you know, there are lots of interesting in literature references that pose the raven and other things that you may or may not have read. He goes ahead and says, those on the rock, remember, that's the thin area where there's a little bit of dirt on top of, of rock, are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it. And they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. We have had, this is true. And I have one person in mind who's the latest, the latest one to do it. 
a lady came in, has an unusual name, and she, she was all excited. I want to be baptized right now. Ralph baptized her, didn't hold her down near long enough. She's never been back to church yet. She was all excited about the church and the music and so on and so forth, but she went back home and who knows, haven't heard from her since. And that's not that unusual. It takes a little different response in some instances. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, the desire for riches and pleasure. And they don't mature. They stay babes in Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth and he said, I can't talk to you as though you were mature believers because you're still baby. I'd like to be feeding your meat and you're still sucking on a bottle. There's a guy, old guy, I like to refer to him that. He's not as old as I am, but I still like to refer to him, but he really is a good friend. He runs the children's home where Patrick and Eddie were educated and grew up in Uganda. At one time, he was a government employee over what is kind of an umbrella organization over what they refer to as the born-again churches. Those are the churches that believe the Bible. In Uganda, 20-some thousand churches, house church, all different ones. He quit, and he said, we've got all of these churches and all of these people, over half of the people in Uganda claiming to have a born-again experience. But he said, they're a mile wide and an inch deep. And he said, I'm going to back out of that and start a different organization. He calls it the BBT, Back to the Bible Truth. Good, good title. And he's starting a Bible college there that one of these days these two lads will be teaching in God willing. If they don't and I'm alive, I'll beat them with a stick. They'll go, go over there and teach. And he sent others to India, some to Kenya. To, some of them are learning cinematography and other things to come back. And when the Bible college starts there, he already has three buildings. When I was there the last time, I kept getting notes from him saying, you need to come here, you need to come here, you need to come here. And I was busy doing other things. So finally the driver, Emmanuel, said, come on, Pastor, let's go. So I jumped in the car. We went to the place, and they were standing there waiting. They were getting ready to build a new classroom, and they wanted me to get down on my knees and to bless that building where these boys will teach God willing. His name is Alex Metalla. You can actually Google him and find out more about him if you want to. The kids call him Uncle Alex because uncle there is the same as saying Mr. here. It's a, a term of, of respect. Years ago, as I told you earlier, when Paul Benjamin and 
some others and I got together to talk about church growth. We had no idea that what we were doing was wrong. With the best of intentions, we came up with the idea of small community groups. If the, church were, if the churches were to grow like we anticipated into thousands of people, you can't have fellowship with a thousand people. You've got to have a smaller group. We said, okay, you'll set up small groups around in different areas, and, and that'll be the fellowship groups. You can call them Bible studies. You can call them growth groups. You can call whatever you want to. But we were dead wrong. Best of intentions, dead wrong. We should have gone back to the family. And we didn't. The result has been that family deterioration has taken place to, to the degree that we never imagined. And if you want your children to stay put and not leave the faith, you better be listening to us. Because we're trying to make up for a horrible mistake we made years ago. You better make your family, because we've talked about what will happen if the corona, we've made some plans. What if the coronavirus gets and becomes pandemic and, it becomes, and they close the schools down here and they say churches shouldn't meet? What, we, well, what should we do? What we decided was we'll come here and have the church service and we're already making it possible so that it can be live streaming. And you would be watching at home on your TV or on your, your smart TV or your smartphone or your whatever type thing you could be watching. We'll put together little packages so that you can have it at your table. You can have your own communion service with daddy leading it. I think it could be kind of neat. I hope we don't have that pandemic, but if it comes, that's what we're planning on doing. We do a little bit more than y'all think we do. We don't sit around and pick our nose and scratch her behind most of the time. We actually do some thinking and working. I, I apologize to my wife. She doesn't like for me to say things like that. But she's got a behind too. So I don't know. But what he was saying, what Jesus was saying here is we have lots of people who, who will come seeking the kingdom of God, but because of the, of, the, of the attraction of this world, they need a new car, they need a bigger house, they need to spend more money on this, they need to be going here, they need... And, and if the commitment to the kingdom of God was as great as it is to athletics, we'd take this world over in no time at all. But, we're not going to change that. That commitment to athletics is such that we're not going to change it. We're going to join them. We're actually looking at the possibility next year, just the possibility of replacing Vacation Bible School with a sports camp for children. One of the churches that I am quite familiar with, had revival meetings with them in the past, did that about three years ago. And they went from about 110, 15 kids like we have at Vacation Bible School to 350. And half of those kids did not go to church anywhere. We'll see how it works out. You just need to be praying about it. As I say, we do a little bit more than sit around and scratch. I'm in tr trouble twice as much now. 
Anyway, he said, choked by worries, riches, pleasures, and they didn't mature. And when they don't mature and they go to college, they fall away. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and a good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop of a hundredfold. Folks, I need to take a minute or two here because I just have a minute or two left. And I'm going over about four minutes I did yesterday because of the video. Yeah, I, I hear you saying it's okay, but you're not taking care of 40 kids back there either. We need to look at, at our young men with our best minds and challenge them to enter the ministry. I'll tell you something that you probably wouldn't hardly believe, but I'm being honest. With all the difficulties that we've had here and in other times through the history of the churches that I've served, I'm often asked, would you do it again in a heartbeat? I believe that preaching the Bible is one of the greatest honors that anybody could ever have in their life, ever. And when you see people come to Christ and see their family change and see their life change, you get goosebumps as big as oranges. Jesus didn't promise us a life of luxury and ease like these guys who get up and say, you come to Jesus and your health, wealth, and everything's going to be perfect. They've been smoking dope. Jesus didn't say that. But he did say that you're privileged to handle the unsearchable riches of God and to share it with people so that they can know who Jesus is and have the assurance of eternal life, just not a fleeting hope. So that when you're lying on your deathbed, you know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you can't get that anywhere else. Jesus closed his, this section with a little story about light. Everybody understands light. He said, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. <laughs> he burned a bed up. Instead, he pulls, puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Now, look, understand that, see the light. What is the light? Jesus said, I'm the light. So he's saying, if you understand, remember he said you have the ears to hear it. Of, so you're going to, if you understand who I am, I'm the light of the world. And if you through the power of the Holy Spirit, allow the character qualities of me to enter you. You become a city set on a hill. You're the light of the world. You're the hope of the world. You're the access to my eternal kingdom. That's what he's saying. But he says, you better be sure. Because Jesus said things that we don't say much anymore, and it's in your Bible. 
He's saying those who make a big deal and get rich and, and have it, all of it centered in themselves, he said, when judgment time comes, I'll say, well, who in the heck are you? Well, I preached. I did miracles. I did some wonderful things. But your motive was all centered in you, and Jesus will say, I never knew you. And we long for great crowds and a lot of money in the bucket. And Jesus said, be careful. Be careful. Because the road to damnation is wide and easy and crowded. Big crowds are there. But the road to salvation is narrow and hard and few are on it. Just make sure you're one of the few. That your heart is pure and your love for the Lord is genuine. So Jesus is saying, therefore consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has, whoever that genuine person is, will be given more. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. He's saying, look, religion can be very prosperous. But I want my followers to be the real thing. I want them to reflect who I am. So you can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, my four minutes are up. Lord, bless this gathering of people and thank you for your word. Oh, that we might hide it in our heart so that we won't sin against you. Dismiss us with a sense of your abiding presence as we leave here to represent you. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You're free to go. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.